Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Today, we are joined by April Mickens-Jolly, Vice President of Health Equity and Culture of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region in Southwest Missouri. April, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. For everyone listening, where does your story begin? I want to start at the beginning. Um, definitely have to talk about um, where and, and, and how I was raised. Um, I am originally from the Richmond area, um, and I, you know, it's one of, one of those stories where you could say you're from the East Coast, but I, I, I am Southern. Um, Richmond is kind of at that, that point um, where if you live north of Richmond, you might not say you're from the South, but if you're from Richmond or further South, you are definitely Southern. Um, and it was an interesting place to grow up because much like St. Louis, um, it had a lot of history. Um, a lot of it was centered around anti-Black racism. There were Confederate statues everywhere, um, but I, I was able to benefit from the love and care of my family and our you know, extended um, village um, and just felt like I grew up in a really strong and powerful and um, affirming um, Black family. Um, and when I um, left home to attend WashU for college, I was um, you know, the first, first time really leaving home to like spread my wings. Um, and I really felt like I was coming to a place where I could be like a real grown up. Um, but what I what I found found was um, in St. Louis, um, you know, being a college student at WashU, you're in this bubble. And so during my four years of college, I did not experience most of what St. Louis had to offer. Um, and so um, I did not really understand um, the history and the power and the beauty of this region until. I had moved away from St. St. Louis and came back. Um, and during those kind of, you know, intervening years, the like 15-ish mm, years or maybe 12, 12 years between my first round of living in St. Louis and this second round, um, my life and my career and my family has taken me on a journey that I never could have really imagined. Um, but I really have been able to benefit from just a really strong background um, in terms of knowing what my values were. Um, that certainly set the course for kind of my um, educational journey and my, my career journey. Um, started off as I graduated from uh, WashU. Um, it was right after 9-11. And so it was an interesting time to be finishing uh, college and looking for a job in that market. Um, took me down a path I did not 
really think I was going down. I thought I was going to be like a, you know, international um, investment banker somewhere. Um, but at the time that I was finishing school, those jobs had kind of shriveled up and dried up a little bit. So I took a job as a buyer at Famous Bar, which is now Macy's, um, because when I was in high school, I had um, a, a, a few jobs working in the retail sector. Um, and when I became a buyer at Macy's, you know, exposed me to all that, um, you know, the corporate world had to offer, um, but definitely showed me the importance and the value of a workplace culture um, being one of the, if not the most critical factor in how you can advance um, as a person in your career um, and certainly really pointed out where there was, you know, uh, in, um, in, in equity in different places in that corporate structure and in the work in, in the world of work generally in this, in this country. Um, and, you know, I worked as a buyer for five and five, five-ish years um, and realized that although I was good at my job, I enjoyed it in many ways, it wasn't as meaningful for me personally um, as what I thought I wanted to do with the rest of my career and my life. And that's where having the partner that I have in Dwelle, um, who at the time was working clinically, was, you know, really saw me struggle with what I should do next and said, hey, have you thought about working in healthcare? They always need people that understand business and finance and healthcare <laughs> because I was thinking, well, I'm going to go back to school and get my master's in business and I'll figure out what I want to do. And he's really the one that said, you should really look at where your values are. You want to help people. You want to feel like you're giving back. Do that in the healthcare sector. Um, so that's what led me into healthcare. I was never, I mean, I never, I never thought about working in healthcare. I grew up with folks in my family who were nurses and rad techs and lab techs. And I thought if you work in healthcare, what immediately came to mind was being patient facing, touching a patient, caring for a patient. I am not, that is, that is not my strength. And I always knew that. Um, so having someone else point out there's, there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different, in, you know, industries um, where you can live your, your values and have meaning and make meaning um, if you just think about how you do that differently. So that's what set me down this path working in healthcare. And as I worked in healthcare, I was seeing and through different roles, um, hmm, there are some lessons to be learned from the retail world <laughs> that we can apply to healthcare in terms of how we view both our patients and clients and our staff um, through the lens of the customer and what are we offering people and are we adding value to people and is this you know um, experience that we're offering whether it's for our internal staff or our patients is it one that people want is it is it what they're asking for um, and in kind of doing that that work and asking those questions, that's really where I came to a place of you know understanding more the impact that racism and um, you know ableism and sexism has 
um, in all of the systems that, that are built to support what we know as our healthcare system, both on a national level and a local level. So in a nutshell, that's how I got interested in the work that I am leading now. Um, but certainly also as a patient, as a, you know, as, as someone who has given birth, who has experienced the healthcare system in different ways, um, you experience it and you see it and then you work in it and it makes you want to make sure that experiences for other people are better. Thank you, April. Really, I I, um, I got to say, as far as your your journey through healthcare, just touching on the different, you know, the different spectrums, the different aspects of the spectrum of healthcare, um, I think it is pretty extensive, and um, you know, really appreciate your your, your insight. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of curious about um, personally is, you know, as somebody who's had this this experience from from multiple sides of healthcare, as being a patient, as being you know, as part of the service delivery, do you feel like you can maybe talk on some of the barriers to health health, health, health equity moving forward um, as you see it, just kind of some of the things that you, that you maybe want to bring attention to some of our listeners. Certainly. So when I think about health equity, I think about what, what are the drivers of, of health equity, right? And it's both the systems that our health, our, our healthcare delivery system is built on but not just healthcare, right? Because we know your, your you know, ability to get access to care is dependent on many other factors that are usually outside of the healthcare delivery system. If we're talking specifically about the medical and clinical services that people are offering. Um, and so think about you know, your ability um, to have a living wage, do do you do you live in a place that has transportation access? Do you live in a place where, if you are a low income person, you can qualify for Medicaid? That's not true in every place, as we know very very well through you know a Medicaid fight here. Um, there's lots of other factors. You have access to childcare if you have a job. Does it allow you to take time off so you can take care of your health? There's a lot of, you know, outside of the walls of the healthcare center or outside the walls of the hospital that has an impact on whether people can access the care that they need to stay as healthy as they want to be. And so when we're thinking about the drivers around healthcare equity, it's one, what are the policies in place that are un that kind of you know, undergird this system or these, these you know, um, uh, intersecting systems that create the conditions in which people live. So that's really the bottom line. What What is the vision that we have or that we want to have for what an equitable culture and country and state and neighborhood is going to look like? Because those are the things that actually can keep people healthy and give people access to what they need to stay well um, the other thing is, are we listening to people when they say, this is what I need? <laughs> that, that is a big driver that I think um, we, we our, our culture, we, we, don't, we don't value often voices of people who are brown and black. We don't value voices of people who um, 
have you know lower um, um, incomes. We often don't value people who are um, uh, not housed or don't don't have access to stable housing. I mean, you look at all of the ways in which we devalue people. And if we ask people, well, what do you need so that you can get access to the things that, that you need to be healthy and well, and then we don't offer them, well, we are built, we, we are baking in, in inequity to every aspect of our system. Um, and then even if we're listening and we're putting forward some 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 things to solve for some of those issues, are we creating the infrastructure <laughs> for those things to thrive? So um, when I talk about health equity, I'm looking at what are the drivers? Are we really focused on on what folks are wanting and what they're asking for and what they've already said would solve some of the challenges that they face? Are we helping people who are doing work on the ground provide more of what they're already doing to support people? And are we creating a pathway so that the work people are doing can, can, can actually help solve the issues that people are facing? And usually that is not the case or it's happening in a very small scale. So when I talk about health equity, I'm usually talking about what are the things we can do to support the people who are already doing this work or how can we be advocates and allies to, to this work, whether it's sharing our power, sharing our resources and funding and money. Um, it's, it's always about who holds the power, but where does the power need to be to actually make, make the change? And then also thinking about once you know what those drivers are for health equity, how, what is your process for actually seeing those things through? So like there's kind of a PDCA process that you can follow. Um, it's not difficult. It's more of, do we have the will? Do we have the energy? Do we want to see these things changed? So if you think about, okay, we are listening to people or we're looking at the data and we see that, you know, Stable housing is a challenge for many of our patients. Let's ask, let's ask people what the challenges are in gaining access to stable housing. Once we hear what folks are saying and then we assess what is our place, what is our role as this you know, um, uh, institution uh, to help you know, folks change what is happening what what can we do and what are we willing to put forward in terms of the resources, support, the the you know, the money, the funding towards helping to solve this problem? Is it a policy, big P, little P? What's our place? How do we design a program or a service that takes into account what community is telling us, what patients are telling us the need is? How can we support it in a way that honors what people have told us they need? Once we implement whatever this new service or this program is, how are we tracking data on it? How do, how do we know it's really answering the call and answering the question? And are we observing both the quantitative and the qualitative feedback 
to know that we are on the right path. And if we're not, how do we make corrections using the data and the feedback that we're getting? Are we scaling it? Are we changing it? Are we adjusting it? And how do we communicate in a bi bilateral way to the folks that supposedly we are working with to engage in this process to create a more, a, a, a more equitable system so that it's not just you know, the BJC or the Planned Parenthood or the name whatever organization it is that has a certain level, a certain level of access and power um, deeming the problem is solved and that we have not checked in <laughs> with the folks who said, this is the issue and this is how it needs to be solved. Um, so it's both thinking through what are the drivers of, of equity or of inequity, starting with what is the leadership, you know, um, uh, understanding of what equity is and what it means in the context in which you work and who you serve? And what is the process that you, along with your community partners, your staff, your team, what are you engaged in in a way that is both listening and honoring and sharing that power and that privilege that you hold um, with folks who are already doing the thing on the ground and need support doing it? Or are you creating a pathway for this work to be moving forward? And it's, so it's, it's this kind of, you know, um, uh, iterative cycle. You're, you're never going to, you know, achieve equity you you can you know advance it and you might get very very close to achieving equity in every sense but given where we are given the history of living in america the ongoing racism the colonialism all of the isms it's it, we are we are in a a a journey and a process um, but I do think that there is a way to, to, to go, go about this work with some rigor, um, in a way that like you can, you can really track what you're doing and if you're having an impact, um, in the ways that you say you want to have an, have, have an, um, impact. So more than just saying we're committed to what are we doing to demonstrate that we are going to do what it takes to make progress on equity goals. Wow, that was a very, very thorough answer. Um, so I encourage everyone to save that clip and run it back anytime you, you're finding yourself in a ditch on, on any projects where you are trying to advance equity. Thank you, April. I wanna go back um, to something you said because I think we have an amazing opportunity to hear from a cohort of leaders that we really haven't heard from yet. I think people kind of in your age range in terms of graduating right after 9-11. Um, that really is interesting to me, uh, number one, because you were able to get a job with just a bachelor's degree, which I guess would have been awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me and maybe Brandon, for yourself, you know, graduating and, and finishing college in 2017 and entering healthcare in 2019, for me, I was actually shocked at how corporate of an environment healthcare was. I was not expecting it to be 
like any other standard business. So that's the first question I have for you. Just what was kind of, you know, some of the lessons that you were able to take from your experience in retail and apply it to your journey in healthcare? And then this is a little bit more of a loaded question, my second question, but I'm a little scared sometimes when I hear healthcare execs or CEOs of healthcare systems say that they want to be consumer centric. And because the way that I look at it is on the retail side, I almost feel like the profit or the direct, or excuse me, the direct outcome of consumer centricity ultimately is profit for companies. And on the healthcare side, I think we could say the same thing, but we want to make it be different. And I just wonder how do we strike that balance living in this capitalistic society? Yeah. Um, well, first, so to answer the first part of your question around just the corporate nature, right, of working in healthcare with a big H, because um, <laughs> I hear I hear what you're saying. Um, and so, yes, I was I was fortunate once to, to to get a full-time job really working anywhere um, before I was finished with school. So I had my job lined up before I was a graduate. Um, I consider myself extremely lucky and blessed, but the fact that I worked every summer um, and actually worked during college a lot too, um, really gave me a leg up. So I would tell folks who are either in college or considering going to grad school um, or in grad school, even if you're in a program that doesn't require you to work, you you should you should think about that. <laughs> you should um, you should really think about that um, because that kind of practical like I had I had been in management. Um, working at a theme park, like a retail store in a theme park when I was in high school. And surprisingly to, I mean, to me, it, it makes sense now, but that, that gave me a leg up on some of my other classmates who were also looking at, at a similar job. Um, so, you know, experience and um, demonstrating you have a skill set. it does matter no matter what stage you are, whether you're entry level or not. And having people who are willing to speak up for the fact that you have that skill set when you need a reference um, matters. <laughs> um, as far as working in healthcare with a big H, when I was a student, um, I went to a program. I, I was I, I was attending um, the dual um, uh, Master of Business, the Master of Healthcare Admin program at at uh, Georgia State. The program was excellent and one of the only ones that allowed people who worked full-time to also go to school which was key key to me because by that time I was married I had a mortgage to pay I had a car note like I had some student loan debt from from my time as a um, undergrad and I just did not want to take on tons and tons and tons of debt to go to graduate school. And so I was going to work, but at Georgia State, they said, we don't require it, but we recommend very highly, very strongly <laughs> that if you're not working full time, that you at least work like 20 hours a week. And that was a little different. This was like 2007, 2008-ish. Um, I graduated from that program in 2009. 
Um, so we were in the midst of another rocky time, um, but healthcare as an industry was still growing um, and there were still residencies and fellowships and internships more so than there are now then. Um, so I was working for a not-for-profit healthcare system, DeKalb Medical, um, which in Atlanta, I believe Emory um, has merged with that system. But there was another graduate of, of, of my program who was probably 10 years ahead, uh, who, who was hiring interns um, from Georgia State to work at the hospital. So I was going from a for-profit, like corporate retail kind of space at that time to work in a not-for-profit healthcare setting. So it was a little less corporate actually than what I was used to, um, but had all of the systems and structures that a healthcare system has. So I was really able to get a lot of knowledge and to make sense around this uh, moniker that we sometimes say in healthcare, no margin, no mission, because I had access to senior leaders who would really break it down to me, what services actually paid the bills and which services were not paying the bills. Like, I think a lot of people would be shocked that at many hospitals, delivering babies does not pay bills. So when you look at public policy and you see what's happening in hospitals, especially in rural areas, and you see labor floors closing, it makes a lot more sense to you, right? rather than, oh, these hospital boards just don't care about us. They're just trying to keep the doors open. Um, so it gave me more of like a systems lens around, oh, this is how healthcare works. Um, I mean, I had heard a little bit of it from my husband who was working clinically at the time, treating patients. The whole reason he went in to help healthcare admin was because he was treating patients and was like, how come my patient I'm, I'm saying from the clinical point of view, they need PT three days a week, but they can only afford one day a week. Why is that? Look at our healthcare financing system, right? That's requiring in some cases, a hundred dollar copay every time somebody comes in. I mean, so making sense of how nonsensical our healthcare you know, um, system is financed was really something very eye-opening and new for me. Um, but I didn't really connect um, or didn't, didn't, didn't really have a preference at that time about do I wanna be in a corporate healthcare space? Do I wanna be kind of in a smaller space? Do I wanna be in a you know, federally qualified health center model? I was still too new to healthcare to know. So when I graduated from my graduate studies, I was working for a for-profit healthcare company that was helping to staff hospitals around the country, many of whom were in rural places with the hospitalist and ED staff that they needed, so the physicians. And it was very interesting to be working at a for-profit company serving mostly not-for-profit hospitals. <laughs> Some were for or were, were owned by for-profit companies. Um, but after that experience, I realized I preferred to work for a not-for-profit entity because the profit motive in healthcare, to your point, made me feel a little bit icky. <laughs> not to 
say it's not, it doesn't have a place because there's, I mean, you look at all these startups that are, you know, coming up to fill gaps. For-profit startups might have a bigger impact on health, on, on health equity and access in some cases than the current not-for-profit ecosystem. That's a great point, by the way. I've never, I've, no one's ever made that point. That's amazing. Wow. So there's, there is nothing wrong with working towards improving the system and being able to make a profit while you do it, as long as you really understand what your profits are representing and what they're going towards. So I like people can look at that through their own paycheck and how they use their own money. (laughs) Right. Um, but like, I don't see myself at this point in my life, like working for a pair. It's because I know too much, <laughs> know too much. And some of our payers are doing really good work to advance equity and really helping to create frameworks and working in a collaborative way with hospitals and systems. But for me, I am more than likely, if I'm not working for myself, I'm going to be more than likely working in a not-for-profit space. And, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really sensitive to where, where I see my value being, um, where, where I see my, my skill set adding the most value. And that, you know, at, at this time is in the not-for-profit space, um, where there's a lot of, collaboration, but could be more between not-for-profit actors and, um, you know, organizations that are already partnering or not, if not partnering, existing within the same, um, you know, universe. So like part of my job is to make connections (laughs) between like Planned Parenthood and what are some of our community partners doing that also you know, intersect with our goals for a more equitable future for for people, whether that's access to care or it's access to all the other elements of people's lives that have an impact on whether they can be healthy. Um, So I will never tell people not to take a certain job because it's corporate or it's for-profit there's going to be an element of corporateness to any institution, right? Um, I think the challenge that a lot of institutions have right, right now is more centered around how do we live our values, whether you're for-profit or not. In the summer of 2020, uh, a lot of you know, not-for-profits as well as for-profit corporations made a lot of promises. Are folks delivering? I mean, I think there's something to be said for, you know, examining whether that's happening. And it's not so, it's it's not so clear-cut all the time along whether it's not for profit or a for profit on their you know ability to live out the values that they hold dear it's really about the leadership willing to do the work that needs to be done 
Yeah, I think it's back to what you initially said, the will. You said that early, you know, early on, the will of an organization um, in terms of achieving equity. I want to, and Brandon, I know you uh, came off mute, but I did want to go ahead and get one more question there. Um, because you also mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, just your background in terms of your identity and race and coming from a very proud, strong, you know, background uh, in terms of, you know, African-American heritage, history, legacy. Richmond is a very historic place, um, very yeah. chocolate place, I would add as well. You know, I'm from Philly. So been, 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 been around, been around the VA right. area a little bit. Um, so, you know, how has, you know, how has your identity as a Black woman, uh, a Black mother, you know, a, a Black woman who's a professional in these environments, um, who is a leader, who, who has higher titles than, 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 than most in any, many ways, um, you know, just carrying this mantle of responsibility and having this, this mindset, uh, how has that been for you throughout your journey? Yeah, it's, it's so funny you should ask this. I was just chatting with somebody else about this who um, has just taken on a role where they are the first um, to have this role. It's a leadership role. And what does that represent? And sometimes people represent things even though they don't want to. It's like it's a lot of pressure to be the first or to be the only or to be one of few. Um, I grew up at a at a time and a, and a place where there were, um, I, I grew up in a town where my entire extended family was very close by. So like, don't try to date anybody in town. They're probably a distant cousin kind of thing. Um, just like outside of Richmond proper. Um, and when I um, got into high school, I actually um, had applied to, uh, um, to like a magnet school that pulled students from, you know, variety of different counties. So I went to a school that was um, less diverse than the community that I was living in or that, you know, I, I wasn't seeing people that looked like my family all the time. Um, and I was, you know, one of a few. And then I get to wash you and I'm one of a few, like there's, there's a pattern here. Um, at one point, my, my parents who, my dad had worked two jobs for 25 years, probably. Um, and my mother was a, was a teacher, but he um, had bought some land and they had built a house on it. And we were the only black people on this street for many years, many years. Um, and I always think back to how that had an impact on my, you know, ability to um, with, withstand the, like, what does it mean to be the only or the one of, one of the few or, you know, what, what does it mean when you have to stand in that gap, honestly, until someone else comes along that you can kind of buddy with? Um, and that's been kind of how, how my entire life has been at, at many times. Um, and I see myself as hopefully a role model in some ways in that I always want to bring someone with me. <laughs> my goal is not to arrive at a place, <coughs> excuse me, and then stay there. Um, I, 
I feel like I'm at the point, I'm, I'm uh, 42 now. I feel like I'm at the point of my life and my career where I try not to take it um, personally. Like people are sometimes looking to me to solve the problem. Like I am like in the role that I'm in now, right? I lead strategy around DEI, health equity, public health impact, organizational culture, organizational excellence. That doesn't mean I have to do all the things. My job is to lead strategy. That means I help create the conditions that allow us to do this work. So I see myself as creating pathways for folks who are underrepresented, underinvested, um, under under uh, underestimated. <laughs> um, to be able to take a similar pathway if they choose. Um, but that's one of the other things that attracts, you know, what really um, attracted me to this role is because what are the barriers we often see that keep us in this, um, uh, this um, you know, system where we witness people having to be the only or the first so often with all these barriers set in people's way. Like if I can remove barriers to people, if I can show people a pathway, if I can create a pathway and then help others bring bring allies and you know advocates along to help keep those doors open, that's what I want to do. Um, I hope we're in a better place to be able to do that. I think there's so much more scrutiny on when that doesn't happen, because usually I'd say in the battle days, which are sometimes still today, um, but like people would come in, be celebrated as the first, the only, but if your colleagues, if your leadership really isn't ready for what you bring to the table, then they don't appreciate you and then you end up making an exit. And that's, I, I, I want to be a part of helping um, leadership teams that I serve on change that. So that is not the, that is not the pathway, right? That other black women or, or other people of color or, uh, you know, queer people or disabled people or whomever the underestimated, undervalued group or person is, I don't want that to be the way that they have to experience their working life. That's really well said. Thank you, April. I appreciate it. Um, I know, I know we're, we're running pretty close on time, but I did want to ask because you know you touched on um, a couple of different things along your journey is in regards to identifying your gift and, and your skill set. And um, coming from a business background myself, uh, I'm, I'm curious for the listeners who are maybe in the stages of maybe just the early stages of their career, or maybe even just switching industries to the healthcare field. Um, what are some of the skill sets that you've seen as a leader, as a, as part of a team, or even just you know kind of stepping into the healthcare field for the first time? What are some of the skill sets or gifts or some of the things that you think are strengths that you really use or leverage well to to add value to to your companies or to your organizations? I would say first is have a level of um, curiosity, um, whether that means hmm, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure it out or I'm going to research or I'm going to use the resources that I have to 
you know, investigate um, what this is that I need to be doing so that I can get the skill set that I need. Um, I do think that oftentimes doing the legwork or the research is so powerful because then you can go to your boss or go to someone and say, hey, I understand the basics. I'm asking you a very specific question, a very knowledgeable, knowledge-based question about how to get this thing done. Um, the second thing would be cultural humility. Um, and what I mean by that is knowing that you don't know everything. You can't know everything. And listening to other folks, especially people who have been there and done, done that, whatever that is, can be a very powerful way to understand what has already been tried, what is working and why, or if something's been tried, why, why it didn't work. Um, so that when you add um, value, you, you can be more, more certain that you have the history of what's already been taking place. There's always a history. There's always a backstory, right, to a to a problem that, that any you know any um, enterprise is facing, and knowing that you don't have all the answers immediately, I think is um, a good way to go about your work, whether you're in leadership or you're entry level. Um, the other thing is um, just really thinking about your role as a teammate and a colleague. So like when people say, um, you know, oh, so-and-so has good interpersonal skills. Um, I think what they're saying is that person doesn't make me feel like I don't belong in the team. That person asks me what I need and tries to, you know, support me and my work. Um, that person like feels like they are, um, vested in me doing well. Like when I hear interpersonal skills, I'm thinking this is someone who really understands the, the, the basis for building really strong relationships. Um, and when you learn that you have to be human before you can get this transactional thing done, it will help you in every sense of the world. Um, you, you'll be able to get things done sometimes that no one else has been able to do because people want to help you. And that's very powerful, especially when you're dealing with things that can feel really tough or you're under like a deadline or you're in the middle of a crisis. Relationships matter the most then. Um, and then the fourth thing is understanding how to read a balance sheet um, and <laughs> understanding a budget. Um, I've been extremely shocked at how many folks at every level don't have a basic understanding of um, building a budget, of like how to read a balance sheet, of what questions to ask so they know if their business unit, um, whether you're in a for-profit or not-for-profit, there's a budget tied to your work, um, how you understand how your budget is built how the resources came came to be and how it aligns with the strategy that your you know institution has um, are very powerful things that whether you've been in your role for two days, two months, or 25 years are always going to be important things 
to be thinking about aligning your work to the strategy that your job is really focused on um, are really critical things. Wow. Um, this is, this has been a lot of excellent wisdom. Um, very, it's like sophisticated, but so easy to understand at the same time, um, <laughs> which is good. And I want to, I kind of want to roll everything up that we talked about into one and kind of address your work now, you know, um, in your position as vice president of health equity and culture at Planned Parenthood, um, which obviously could have been a whole topic and conversation in itself. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, before we actually started um, recording, um, I remember first seeing you, as I was saying, when I moved uh, to St. Louis to take my fellowship at uh, Barnes Jewish Hospital, being at one of the NASI uh, symposium events, and it was on maternal health. And I remember one of the things that was just so striking to me was hearing that Black mothers in St. Louis are three to four times more likely to die uh, than their white counterparts. And one of the things that you said uh, was cultural humility. It's really important to have that, you know, and to know that you're, you don't think you know all the answers. And uh, Brandon came here from Atlanta. I came here from Atlanta. So, you know, thinking that uh, we kind of knew, we kind of seen it. Oh, you know, we're blickety black, we're radical. We know what to do. Um, but then coming here and really being shell-shocked by just the immense challenges that Black moms in the state or in the region, uh, the Boot Hill region in St. Louis, but of course, in the entire state of Missouri had. Um, so with kind of our last you know, question and however much time you want to take, uh, can you just speak uh, to maternal health? Um, you know, your role at, at Planned Parenthood, some of the challenges that the state of maternal health is, is facing from a policy side, from a financing side, from all the different sides, and just how you see that field uh, evolving over time. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, lifting that uh, maternal health, um, especially for Black women, is a crisis point. Um, and we just have to be honest about the roots of it. Right, like if we want to go all the way back, um, we can, you know, start to talk about the displacement of, you know, indigenous people here and the lack of respect and value for people's lives that were already living on this land. Let's talk about the fact that hundreds of thousands of people were stolen from Africa and brought to North America and Latin America. America and you know experimentation and torture visited upon Black women um, to create this new model of uh, medical care we now know as you know gynecology. Um, when we look at the history of how gynecology um, and what you know some some people call women's health. Um, really has its roots in violence and terror and not, not valuing people that have vaginas and you know a uterus. Um, and when we think about that, are we actually shocked that we're at a place where we devalue the things that Black women say they need when it comes to medical care or women or people with female sex organs generally. Because if you look at the outcomes and the literature for many ailments that women have, you'll see a lot of uh, discourse in the journals around the sexism that's rampant in medical care and 
definitely racism and medical racism is a crisis of its own. So that's, that's what underpins, right? The crisis that we're in, it extends to the policy failures that we have. You know, when we look at um, who is most likely to live in a place with poor air quality, right? So environmental racism. So there's a there's an ism there. When we look at, you know, who's most likely to have access to high quality healthcare coverage as an insurance, uh, all, all of these things are linked. Like if you think about, um, I don't know if this came up during that panel that you were talking about, but um, when we were thinking about like for, um, the, the, for the sake of all project that looked at what are all the overlapping maps around the St. Louis region, whether it's life expectancy, value of housing, um, educational attainment, healthcare attainment, et cetera. If you look at where all of our neighborhoods have been redlined, you, you can see where the disinvestments are taking place. So is it any wonder that the majority of places that have, that, that have seen extreme disinvestment based on race are also some of the neighborhoods where we see this crisis showing up the most. It's also important to, to say that if you're a black woman, you are at just as great a risk of having a poor health outcome during your pregnancy or after birth if you've been to graduate school, in fact, more so if you've been to graduate school. So it's not just about the income. It's not just about the education. People sometimes want to put these qualifiers on there. No, it is the racism. Okay. So if you listen to people and give people the best standard of care, we wouldn't be seeing this. We would not be seeing it. So another reason why I'm very passionate about both the little P and the big P policy work, right, is around what are the, what are the systems involved in creating um, the, you know, environment where we can really live out the principles of reproductive justice, you know, your right to have a family and live safely with them, to not have a family and to do what you need to do and want to do to be able to thrive and live your best life. That's both big P, like what is the state and the federal government doing to support black women and femmes and their families. And then inside of the institutions, inside of, of these healthcare settings, inside of educational settings, um, what are we doing to support people, especially Black women and girls, um, to be able to make the choices that are best for them based on what they want and what their needs are, and how are we supporting that? Um, so it's really, it's really multifaceted, and if folks aren't thinking through this work with an intersectional lens, the overlay of race, gender, socioeconomics, um, neighborhood, it, it, it all matters, but we need to be clear that race, specifically anti-Black racism is at the root.
Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's it's chilling when you really think about um, just the, you know, regardless when you adjust for income, you know, all these different things and you look at, um, you know, the, more, the maternal mortality rate among Black women um, and even going further, even, you know, as you were talking about, you know, the um, field of gynecology um, and how that evolved, thinking about how there were never any physicians that could identify with Black women ever in this field for decades, centuries, if, you know, if even, and it's, 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 it's chilling, right, to really think about it. And I think, you know, I appreciate you calling out both the big P and the little P, because I think that as an emerging um, you know, healthcare uh, leader, administrator, uh, we don't see how much opportunity we have on the institutional level to really drive a lot of change that that little P level that you're saying. Um, and it takes the humility, it takes the will, uh, all of these different things that, that you're saying. So um, I appreciate you uh, shedding light on that and uh, being in the position that you're in. And again, taking on this mantle responsibility because it is not easy. And I'm sitting here thinking that I've gotten, I, I've gotten tired being you know one of the few black faces in in the room but how can I get tired if you're still going hard every single day right to be tired and I also encourage people to rest (laughs) um that's that's something I think that we don't talk about enough is Mm. you got to take time for yourself Mm. like sometimes I'm like you know what I just don't I can't talk I can't I can't people today I need to take a break um, and I let my colleagues know I'll be available via email and text uh, because <laughs> I'm working on some other things or I'm taking a personal day for my mental health because, um, you know, everything is streamed now. Like it's, it can be, it can be a lot to, you know, observe, um, how casually the racism is happening on the national stage at all, all moments. Um, and so I just encourage people, especially people of color to please take some time to like decompress because it can be a lot, it can be a lot. So. Yeah. Brandon, I didn't know if you had any, any closing comments or. Yeah, no. Um, you know, I, I think you, you both kind of touched on some really good points. Um, you know, like Winston said, I'm from Atlanta. So when I came up to. Uh, St. Louis, and you know, I just kind of started to see the the, the blatant health disparities. Um, you know, I was uh, exposed to the the, the report, the for Safe for All, and just seeing the, the different life expectancy between a, a block. Um, it was a shock to me, um, and, and and I realized, uh, and I think Winston, you had said this to me, and this was a while ago, but you know, you see, you want to see the, the the effects of Jim Crow on a modern day city when you would come to St. Louis, and. Um, you know, with that being said, I, I'm almost motivated to do better. And I, and I want to say thank you as well for somebody to be to be able to talk to somebody who's you know, well ahead of us, who has a lot more experience, who's done a lot more to contribute to those those health disparities. Thank you. Thank you for being a motivation. And thank you for taking out the time to speak with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am so flattered that <laughs> you all would call me and ask ask me to join um, because I was I was telling um Winston, before we we got started taping, I'm just so thrilled uh, that you all have started this podcast. I think it's a just it's a really great way to get uh, folks 
thinking and talking more about, um, you know, what it's like to be a person of color working in these spaces and also what can we learn from each other? Because I get a lot of energy talking to you all um, and, you know, observing the wins that you all have. Trust me, you have a lot of people behind you clapping and cheering and speaking your names in, in, in rooms when you're not even there. Um, and so I want, I want us to be able to, to do more, more of that for more people. Well, that's it for the episode. And we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.